Hello. My name is Christopher Preble, and I'm the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Thank you all for joining us today for this online policy forum. I also want to give a shout out to Cato's events team. Uh, there are way more moving parts and pieces when uh, we're not at Cato HQ, so getting the details straight isn't easy, and I really appreciate all that they have done to help out here. Today's topic is what frightens us and why? Threat perception during and after COVID-19. We are taking questions on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just use the hashtag CatoFP. For many years, I've been interested in threat perception, uh, starting with my research into the Cold War era missile gap. I wondered why Americans ever doubted uh, that the United States had an enormous advantage over the Soviet Union in strategic weapons. But skeptics at the time accused the Eisenhower administration of complacency, and they generally won the argument. So in that sense, fear and pessimism, which exaggerated the Soviet threat, prevailed over hope and optimism, which generally got it right. And then more recently, when I arrived at Cato in early 2003, there were the supposed threat posed by Saddam Hussein's WMDs. These, like the missile gap, proved illusory, but the Better safe than sorry uh, involved a preventive war that cost, of course, trillions of dollars and claimed thousands of American lives, plus thousands of a few hundred thousand uh, Iraqi lives. But of course, mostly there's been terrorism. And since 9-11, Americans have been practically fixated on that particular threat, even though there has not been a major terrorist incident on U.S. soil in nearly 19 years. And statistically speaking, a person's chance of being killed by a terrorist remains vanishingly low. It isn't merely the case, however, that pessimism and fear consistently win out over those who counsel a wait and see attitude. For example, um, sometimes the costs of preventive action are thought to exceed the benefits and thus no action is taken or action is delayed. For example, as the coronavirus spread around the world, some dismissed it as no more dangerous than the flu. And as the numbers of infected rose and deaths from the disease mounted, uh, skeptics noted that a person was still far more likely to die in an automobile accident or other diseases, although that doesn't seem like that's going to be the case, unfortunately, in 2020. So should we conclude that this time around, or at least we weren't fearful enough? Um, meanwhile, we still have the traditional security threats, everything from China and Russia to Iran and North Korea. The military is still poised to block their actions. The Trump administration even ramped up counter-narcotics operations in the Caribbean and is also still concerned about state and non-state actor activities in space and cyberspace. So I'm very pleased to have with me today, virtually of course, uh, two outstanding scholars to answer several key questions as we've set them up on our website. And they include what explains public fears and the government's response to them? To what extent does national security strategy shape public attitudes or is it mostly shaped by them? And lastly, how might strategic planners prioritize the allocation of resources between traditional and non-traditional threats post-COVID-19? It seems not too soon to speculate on that a little bit. Uh, we'll hear first from Rose McDermott. Uh, Dr. McDermott is the David and Mariana Fisher University Professor of International Relations at Brown University. And then we'll hear from Eugene Goltz. Eugene's a Cato adjunct scholar and also Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Notre Dame. There will be plenty of time for questions after Rose and Eugene's introductory remarks, so please feel free to submit them online via the event page or uh, via Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And again, the hashtag is CatoFP. So with that, Rose, why don't you take it, take it away? 
Thank you very much, Chris, and thanks to the Cato staff for all their help orchestrating this. Um, I think that the topic that Chris raises is uh, a really important one in the current COVID crisis, and part of it has to do with how we think about fear in general. So one of the important things to realize about fear is that it serves a useful function. It's adaptive. It helps us protect ourselves and um, defend from uh, emergent threats or from things that could harm us. And so um, as uncomfortable as it is, it can be very useful because it can help us plan um, and try and take care of ourselves when things happen that are, that are threatening or pose risks. Um, that said, we aren't always very um, accurate in thinking through the likelihood of a particular threat um, from a statistical or economic standpoint where you think about it like cost-benefit. We think about it more intuitively um, as psychologists, which may not necessarily align with how probability uh, function works. So um, there's a couple of things that I'd like to mention about that. The first is that for the last 30 years or so, Paul Slovic, uh, who's a really brilliant social psychologist, has been doing a lot of work on risk and threat perception. And one of the things he talks about is that um, what he calls dread risk um, has a bigger impact on um, our sense of fear and concern. And dread risks are risks where we think it's uncontrollable, it's unpredictable, and it has the possibility to cause a lot of lives. Um, so um, the original work that he did in this regard actually was about nuclear um, explosions and thinking about um, that's a technology that was new and that people had a hard time uh, parsing and thinking through whether or not um, that would pose a real threat, threat, but they knew it was hard to predict. It was really hard to think about how you'd control it. It could cost a lot of lives. Um, and so it had a different characteristic than a threat that was really well known, like a car accident. Um, a car accident, you know the technology that leads to a car accident. It doesn't feel like it's a harbinger of more car accidents or that we don't understand how cars work. And so the way that we process those kinds of fears is quite different. Um, that emotional aspect of um, processing risk and threat perception goes hand in hand um, and interacts with other kinds of cognitive biases. Um, and the most um, important of which many of you may be aware of from Don Daniel Kahneman's work in Thinking Fast and Slow, but that was based on earlier work he did with Amos Tversky. Um, and one of the things that they look at is what they call the weighting function. And they show that really low probability risks tend to be overweighted. So lots of people, for example, are scared of plane crashes, even though the probability of dying in a plane crash is really low. We can think of the threat of terrorism that way. Objective probability, as Chris said, is really low, but um, we have a lot of fear around it and we put a lot of money and resources into protecting against it. Whereas <clears throat> with things that are moderate to high risk, um, we underweight it. We give it less importance than it actually deserves. Um, so you can think about prevention strategies against heart attacks like for obesity or smoking in that category. We don't actually give it as much public health attention as it might deserve. And I think that the pandemic disease part fits in that because it's definitely predictable. Um, you know, we had some early planning under other administrations um, about a pandemic response team, about putting more money into the CDC and public health and so on, um, but not as much as we could. 
Some of that is probably a political calculation that politicians don't get a lot of credit for preparing for something that doesn't happen. And so you get more credit when you actually react when it does happen. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's not predictable and that there shouldn't be better planning into it. It just means that psychologically, we don't give it as much credence, as much attention um, as uh, we would to things that um, seem much more dramatic. Um, and that's the last point I'll make. I think part of what happens with something like COVID is it's hard to see. Um, you can't see the virus and um, humans are very visual creatures. Um, and so it's easier to see a terrorist action where there's blood and gore and destruction and you know where the enemy is and you can see it and you can find it. Um, and it's much more difficult when you need an electro, you know, electron microscope to look at something. Um, and so I think people have a much more difficult time conceptualizing things that they can't actually um, see. Um, as opposed to other animals, like dogs, for example, who put more attention into smell or owls who put more attention into hearing, humans are really visual in that regard. And it makes it very difficult to um, process things that don't have um, visual content. So um, I think I'm going to stop there and turn it over to, um, I guess, Jean, and then we can hopefully have more of a discussion back and forth and conversation. Great. Thanks, Rose. Great. Thanks, Rose. Go ahead, Eugene. Okay, so um, uh, I think Rose offered us some uh, fascinating comments at the individual level, which I don't know very much about. So I, th I think I'm learning a lot. Um, I I'm gonna talk a little more about government um, uh, response to threats and hopefully that'll, that'll contribute to our conversation. I also wanna thank uh, Chris for, um, and Cato for putting together a really interesting um, conversation this afternoon. It's a really good topic, I think. Um, so uh, I think the problem with uh, imagining government response to threats and preparation and thinking about where we should invest to respond to threats is actually that not that we have underactive imaginations, but we have perhaps overactive ones. Um, we can imagine that we would hope the government would protect us from. And, and there are limits to what we want the government to protect us from. So, so we government could protect us from lots of things if we were willing to sign up for a police state. Of course, the government then wouldn't protect us from itself. But, um, but there are many, many possible harms uh, that the government could, by just controlling our lives, you know, could restrict car accidents. Um, but we actually don't want that. We don't think it's appropriate. That's not the right comparison, right? We shouldn't be thinking about your probability of dying in various ways when we think about what we ask the government to do. Um, you know, one thing that, that occurred to me in thinking about this is, um, you know, there's an oath of allegiance in the United States that uh, uh, politicians, military people, naturalization of creating new citizens, people swear this oath of allegiance, which is about... Um, uh, uh, defending foreign and domestic, or if we think about the classical liberal tradition of why governments are formed, um, it's a lot about controlling um, risks of other human-induced violence, right? So we expect the government to try to limit crime or protect us from crime. Uh, uh, that's the domestic threat. And to protect us from foreign governments that might you know, invade us, conquer us, enslave us, do bad things. And, um, you know, that's in some 
idealized sense what we think government should be protecting from. But then we can imagine so many possible ways that something could go wrong even within that construct. So uh, um, uh, some colleagues of mine, including uh, uh, someone at, at Cato, uh, published a great piece about what they called you never knowism, which is so if terrorists are going to do X or they might do Y or they might do Z and you know we can all spin out lots of scenarios for this. And if you thought the government had to imagine had to protect against everything it could imagine in advance, it's a recipe for kind of infinite government spending and infinite government control. Um, and uh, in general, uh, we resist that and we end up, you know, a couple of high profile things get prepared for very intensively and almost nothing else gets prepared for in advance because you can't succumb to you never knowism and have a free society or have a functioning government. And so um, what you end up with is every time the government is called on to act in a particular scenario that shows up, the government seems unprepared. Right. So I think about this a lot in the military context. So even when the government or more each year on defense, we always seem unprepared for whatever military scenario comes up. Right. So we go to fight in Iraq and it turns out this brilliant military that we have, which is terrific is somehow unprepared or wrongly prepared. We didn't even know in advance that we needed MRAPs to protect us from roadside bombs as the crucial technology for this war. And then it turns out maybe that even wasn't. Like in the war, we thought that's the thing we really need. And then it turned out that wasn't the thing we really needed because it didn't actually win the war. It protected American troops that kept us in the war longer with something that didn't lead to a victory. And so you can't figure out and plan in advance. What you need is what the United States has, which is tremendous resources to throw at problems after the problem emerges and you get information and clarity on what to do. And you example, or body armor, or our weapons jamming in Vietnam, or all sorts of problems that we've had, but we work on it and we fix it because we're rich and we're flexible and we're resilient. And um, so thinking in advance about, hey, we should plan more for everything doesn't seem the right answer. In fact, I think the answer is, um, uh, the strange thing is that we do spend $700 billion a year on military threats, right? The real question is, why do we spend so much knowing that we're likely spending on the wrong things and that the probability of any American being enslaved or otherwise damaged by foreign military operations, even if we spent dramatically less than we currently spend, is zero or as close to zero, right? So um, it's not a question of, hey, it's about um, explaining why we spend so much on overprotection and ineffectual protection using our current military, which is terrific. I want us to have a great military. I just don't think we need a $700 billion a year great military. And I think the COVID crisis actually probably reminds us of that, right? Because it turns out the things that people end up being scared about are things to which there is no plausible military response. I'll stop there.
Uh, th great, thanks a lot, Eugene. Um, I've uh, so I already see a few questions uh, filtering in here, and uh, uh, please submit your questions. Make sure you use the hashtag CatoFP. Um, one of the things I wanted to pick up on um, that relates a little bit to what Rose said is I've seen some research suggesting that people tend to play down, play the risks of activities that they see as beneficial and to downplay the benefits of activities they see as risky. We've already talked about the differences between sort of high visibility or high impact events, but there's also this question about sort of when you, you sense that you derive a benefit from it, you tend to downplay the risk. So for example, I'll use a silly example. You know, I, I think that skiing is risky. I didn't think it was as risky until I like fell down the mountain a couple times and hit my head, uh, but I don't see much of a benefit, so I stopped skiing. But others obviously derive a lot of enjoyment from it and uh, and they continue to do it. Or another example is, you know, smokers are more skeptical of the risks of smoking than non-smokers because they see a benefit. So, but the really tough part is how does public policy navigate uh, among a public's fears because and again this relates a little bit to what Eugene said as well is because I'm we're not necessarily comfortable we shouldn't be comfortable with the government banning smoking or banning skiing uh, but the government does have this responsibility to keep us safe from harm so how do we see government adjudicating this and, and how how much does, does how government respond affect public fears or vice versa Which one of us do you want to have take that, Chris? Well, actually, I should say, what, Rose, why don't you go first with that one? I apologize. Go first. Okay. Um, I think that that's an important question, and I think it partly ref, um, is part of the challenge these days is that a lot of those things get um, reflected through uh, partisan polarization. So you have a situation where it's not just a particular threat, but it has a particular political meaning. So, you know, you talk about a government could ban cigarettes. I think about when Bloomberg tried to ban, you know, um, big gulp um, sugar drinks. And it becomes a particular, it, it, it's not just that it's about, say, reducing uh, obesity, which can be seen as a public good, but it then comes to have a particular kind of partisan political meaning. Um, and that weaponizes it in a particular way that makes it very difficult to have it be an objective way that the government tries to, you know, protect against certain kinds of outcomes. Um, and so to me, that's what I see as part of the challenge in governmental responses to um, certain kinds of protection strategies. And you see it playing out even now with which states are opening up, which states are still trying to lock down. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, the discussion around whether or not you prioritize public health versus prioritizing um, not just economic health, but other, other consequences, whether it's, you know, domestic right. violence or suicide rates or, you know, other kinds of consequences. And so all of right. this gets refracted through a very partisan political environment that makes it much more difficult to have, um, you know, a quote unquote objective conversation about what the real threat is and, and how best government should respond to it. And I'd like to say one more thing about what you were saying about um, the trade-offs. You know, Bob Jervis has done a lot of really interesting work looking at trade-offs um, in values. And one of the things that's really interesting is they're not accidental, right? Like we think things aren't threatening that we believe in, right? So if you're a supporter of nuclear power, you don't think that it's as dangerous as somebody who opposes nuclear power. 
And those things don't logically have to go together, but they tend to go together in our minds because we have wishful thinking. We want to believe that the things we want aren't as threatening or are more helpful and the things that we don't like and we don't want are more threatening and more um, uh, detrimental to our health. And so um, it's very difficult to get around the fact that we search for evidence that supports our pre-existing beliefs. Um, and so all right. we do with all the evidence we get is we just make our existing beliefs stronger. We don't actually change our mind about the underlying risk, the underlying threat, the underlying um, uh, you know, problem. Right. Great, thanks. Uh, Eugene, I have a question actually from the audience uh, that may relate a little bit to something you said near the end of your remarks. Uh, Alfredo Gutierrez asks uh, why the US government was not equipped to face the current pandemic despite the warnings for at least 15 years um, that such a threat was inevitable. Um, was this another failure of the imagination like 9-11? How would you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's true that um, experts have talked about the prospect of pandemic disease, and that has been reflected in intelligence community products, um, uh, expert commissions that have been at the presidential level. Um, uh, you know, there's a lot of longtime concern that you know pandemics could come. Um, we actually have experience with things that that be a pandemic or, or a serious epidemic with, um, uh, you know, a couple of avian flu, swine flu episodes, right? There was a huge controversy in the 1970s with President Ford's response to, uh, you know, a, a swine flu outbreak where, you know, the criticism has gone in the reverse direction that um, uh, his kind of rapid effort to mobilize um uh, vaccination and treatment hurt more people than it potentially could have saved because it turned out that that epidemic didn't become a pandemic, right? I mean, these are complicated decisions that involve lots of judgment about things that it's very hard to know in advance, uh, including, and I, I'm not an expert on on epidemics in particular, but including my understanding is in epidemics, having, having read a few things about that um, and thought about the uh, so I don't think it's a failure of imagination. People know that there's a possible risk. Um, it's a question of, you know, what do you do um, knowing that there's a risk, knowing that you have a thousand other priorities, knowing that there are a thousand other things crying out for your attention. Um, it's not 2020 hindsight that this is the year that this thing turned out to, to come up tells you you need to respond this year, but it doesn't tell you that from, there are lots of things that people regularly warn about that don't come up in any particular year or for which, you know, the preparation might not have been right. So saying, oh, we should have had a lot of ventilators stockpiled. We had some, maybe we should have had more. Could be true that we should have had more, um, but, you know, you could imagine epidemic diseases that affect other start stockpile of of dialysis machines, kidney machines, uh, you know, lithotripsy machines, all of these other things, you have to make choices, even if you acknowledge, oh, there's a potential for pandemic disease. 
well, what pandemic disease and what is the treatment you need to prepare? And I mean, I think it, it's not that that's paralyzing. Oh my gosh, we can't decide. It's that that's um, paralyzing. There is no right answer for what we should spend on today about the potential, you know, possibilities in the future. Like we should have a robust public health system. We should have people who know how to respond, who know how to trace, who know how to find out if the disease is emerging. Like we should have, in a sense, an intel and a warning capability that can trigger a response when it's time. And, um, you know, maybe you could say we should have had more or less of that, but that's not thing is saying which was a you know we had a failure of imagination and not understanding that this was a prospect and how do we know that it's because we don't have a giant pile of ventilators uh i have another question i uh i had one teed up i'm going to come back to but actually i have a question for rose uh i think it would fit mostly with rose jim huddle asks i think that people perceive risk as not just average risk x out of a hundred thousand but also sort of standard deviation so high variance events like you mentioned airplane crashes or terrorism drive risk perception do you have anything to comment on that or add to that how would it how would it actually and related to, to the answer to to eugene's question how would a better sort of expression of risk in those in that way would that affect how we allocate resources uh, for high consequence, low probability events? Yeah, I mean, the um, my first response is just to go back to this issue of um, whether a, a risk is understood to be a dread risk, meaning something that is understood to be uncontrollable, unpredictable, and with the potential for a lot of deaths. Um, and so under such conditions, um, people give it more kind of psychological attention. They worry about it more, it causes more fear. So um, you have a higher risk perception, you have a higher threat perception around that. I mean, one of the things that I'll say in response to what Eugene just said, which I thought was really interesting and important, um, is that the countries so far that have done a really great job, um, you know, you think about Singapore or, um, you know, Thailand, Taiwan, um, South Korea, they're countries that had experience with SARS, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, and they learned a lesson. Like sometimes intelligence learning learns best from failure. I mean, so they had a failure. They had, you know, SARS and it killed a lot of people and it scared them, but it meant that they invested in the public health system in a really different sort of way. They had an established system about um, contact tracing, about surveillance, about, um, you know, now as a society, we may decide we don't want to be traced on our cell phones and so on, but that population was willing to take that uh, surveillance in order for the public health benefit because of what they had been through with SARS. And so some of these things are imaginable. You look at who's doing really well in Africa, you know, it's the countries that, that learned really good public health surveillance from the Ebola outbreak. Um, and so I think a lot of these things are actually more predictable than people think that they are. They just don't want to invest in the trade-off in terms of privacy or surveillance or some of the other costs that are associated with having a robust public health system. And to me, one of the most interesting questions out of all of this is how big a change will we get at the back end? Like, are we going to get a complete overhaul in our, in our health system, not just public health, but health system in general, so that um, you know, if you look at the racial disparities in um, COVID deaths, some of that is because of comorbidities that result from um, uh, unequal access to underlying healthcare, right? And so will that really change or will we just 
you know, do what we did with the 1918 flu pandemic and just forget about it once it's over and pretend it didn't happen and then just move on. And to me, that's a very interesting question about what we're going to do with these risks is whether we take them seriously going forward, like the people in Southeast Asia did with SARS, or do we just behave the way that we did in 1918 and, you know, uh, sort of forget about it and move on? Great, thank you, Rose. I've had uh, I had a question teed up uh, pertaining to China, and I've gotten a question as well um, uh, asking about China. So the way I have thought about this is, how important is it that the coronavirus originated in in China? What if it came from Montana? Uh, are are Americans or human beings just generally are they more likely to fear threats from foreign countries than from those? From within, and why is that? And a related question again is then, and then if we determine that it is relevant that the that the disease originated in Wuhan, um, how important is it that uh, China's uh, sort of divulging information about the the virus uh, it affected the way that the rest of the world responded to it? That was the question that I got from the audience. So I, I was just sort of quick curious about how. I'll start with Eugene. Is like how important is it? Uh, to see to see this as a foreign threat uh, as opposed to uh, as you, uh, a domestic threat. Um, so I think it, it's important in terms of the response or the overreaction, perhaps, but not necessarily. So you say if this had emerged in Montana, I think people would have also freaked out and been very concerned. So you know, politicians, particularly in polarized times, as as uh, Rose mentioned earlier, um, often end up stoking fears. And a lot of the fears they stoke in election campaigns are domestic fears. Um, now, some of it has to do with issues that are tied up with foreigners and race and a bunch of other um, uh, uh, content to it. But, um, you know, President Trump uh, uh, in the election campaign was warning about um, urban violence and cities being a big mess. And, and, you know, this is a domestic threat. It's a threat to domestic order that he was using to, to try to rally um, uh, or try to, try to gain perceived political advantage. And um, so people react to domestic threats quite a lot. Um, and, it, you know, it's not just President Trump. Many people have used um, uh, domestic threats. Now, in terms of a response, we have a political culture which, um, as Rose said, channels some of our domestic responses, right? It makes it harder to do some kinds of intrusive surveillance or intrusive uh, uh, restriction on people in response to public health threats. That wouldn't apply. You know, it's much easier um, to respond to foreign threats in very dramatic ways to say, you can't cross the border anymore. We have lots more control at the border than we have domestically. We expect the government to do more there. Or to say, we're mad at you, you country, you screwed something up, so we're gonna put economic sanctions on you. We're gonna make it hard for people to do business in your country. And you know, ultimately, your government is so defective that we're gonna to try to change it, um, right? Which is not gonna happen with China, but does happen with other governments from time to time when we really blame foreigners for a threat against us, right? We, we, you know, we don't, at least I hope we don't, where you know, the government of such and such a state is so defective that we're going to come change it. Like, I, I don't think that's really in the offing. And in that sense, 
you know, it's easier for responses to get out of control when we call it a foreign threat. Oh, Rose, do you have anything crazy. to add to that? Or I, it does. Uh, Rose, do you have anything else to add to that, or or I can go to the next question? We have a couple um, other questions in the queue. Yeah, I'll just. Um, I think what Jean said was great. I just wanted to make a couple of other points. One is, I think that the issue of tribalism is real, and so you know, thinking about us versus them activates a different kind of psychological sense of the desire and need to feel like it's important to protect myself, to defend myself. Um, the problem with public health threats is they're not limited by borders, right? Because they, you know, once it's human to human transmission, borders don't matter. Um, and so, you know, that's a, the, the issue of tribalism is important. The one other point that I'll make about it coming from China is that I do think that this relates to larger environmental policy. So when you think about, um, there's pretty good science now that um, a very high percentage of the people who live around the bat caves in Wuhan have shown antibodies to this virus since 2017. So it's been going on for a while. Um, and then it just took a while to become viral, as it were. Um, and so, you know, thinking through the way that we're interconnected as a planet and environmental policy around how we treat wildlife, how humans invade on wild, what had previously been wildlife territory, how we treat the environment, um, all will have consequences, not just for this particular outbreak, but for the world that we've constructed, which sets up... Um, uh, pandemics in the future, right? So if we want to prevent this going forward, we need to think about the way that we interact with the environment, um, not just other countries, um, because that's going to be a source, especially in the face of climate change, of uh, future pandemics, which could be even worse than this one, right? Um, so I, I just think that that's an important consideration as well. Okay, thank you. Okay, uh, thank remember, you. to those uh, remember, watching, to we those are... Watching, taking questions on Facebook and um, uh, Twitter and YouTube, just use the Cato hashtag, uh, Cato FP, hashtag Cato FP. I got another question. Um, I, I mentioned my earlier work on the missile gap and uh, terrorism. And around 2013, John Mueller and I collaborated on a project on threat inflation, including a, an edited volume that was published in 2014 called A Dangerous World, Threat Perception in U.S. National Security. Um, that work actually continues. Cato just relaunched a project on threat assessment, and you can visit cato.org uh, slash threat correction to learn more. But I, the reason why Cato has done this work over the years is, is one of the motivating factors does pertain to how public fear can result in the loss of civil liberties and the growth of the state. And James Madison uh, declared, quote, a universal truth that the loss of liberty at home is to be charged to provisions against danger real or pretended from abroad. So what we're really talking about here is how can we assess an appropriate level of fear and anxiety at the kind that keeps us from doing foolish things from irrational fears? Is there a standard? Can there be a standard? Uh, I guess I'd kick that to Gene first, but I think it also relates to some of the things that uh, Rose has said. Yeah, well, to me, the question about what's a rational or an irrational fear in a government response sense, you know, ultimately it has to come down to a matter of judgment and trust in government institutions to make good judgment. Like we can't know a lot in advance. It's hard to know an exaggeration or not an exaggeration. So some of the tests that Rose mentioned, which are really good, like, you know, 
believing both the, the, the relationship that people who believe in something are more likely to think it's safe than people who are opposed to that particular policy. Um, that's a meaningful test across a population, you know, after the, you know, kind of after the fact, it's not something which you can use to, um, you know, pick a leader who has to um, make judgment about comparing, comparing threats that may or may, may not be comparable to decide what's, what's a reasoned threat, what's not, what's the thing to, to prepare for. So basically, it's a question of um, making this a priority and picking our leaders and, and, you know, thinking about what makes for good judgment or bad judgment, right? Certain people seem to be, and maybe it may seem is, is the right word. It may or may not be right, but they seem to um, have more of a tendency to panic than others or more of a tendency, you know, whatever. And when we go through a, a presidential election, that's one of the things that we could evaluate, right? Um, as we choose who our leaders are going to be, is whether we think the kind of people who are going to make reasoned judgments or who, are, who we trust to make judgments about things that, you know, we know they're hard questions and we know that we might not be able to make the decision ourselves, but we're electing them as our representative to make those judgments, right? This is a classic value in government, um, you know, it goes back to Greeks, right? You know, uh, uh, ancient writings. And, um, and I think it's one that we should think about more, perhaps it, it's just, this revisits that issue in our, in our current politics. Um, maybe then a related question. We talked a lot about institutions of government and their, how they respond to fears. Uh, but what about other institutions like the media um, in terms of the kinds of things they report on. This is a question we've gotten a few questions. Vin had asked this, you know, what role might institutions like the media play in undermining pandemics as they focus on things like wars or trade tensions or political battles? Um, I've actually gotten a couple different questions pertaining to, to this. How, how would you respond to that? Rose, I'll, I'll go to you first. Um, well, I think it again, it's the it's a version of the response that Eugene just gave, which is that, um, you know, a lot of it has to do with trust, right, and public trust in uh, institutions, whether it's the government, whether it's the media, whether it's science, right? So some people may trust science to develop a vaccine or a treatment or something, and other people are not going to trust science and not you know, be willing to vaccinate or whatever it happens to be. Um, and I think part of the problem with the media is that it's not like the Walter Cronkite days, right? Like there's a million different media outlets. There's a million different ways that people communicate through social media as well as vetted media. And so um, there's not a common conversation. You know, there's these echo chambers and some of them are going to exaggerate the threat um, and some of them are going to dismiss the threat. Um, and it's partly going to be in service of... Um, other political agendas that may be completely unrelated to the threat. And there's also the piece about how they make money, right? And getting eyes on um, whatever the media is. And so sensationalism, you know, forever um, is one of the things that sells papers and gets people's attention and so on. And so there's a particular value in um, uh, having sensationalist claims. Um, and it's difficult to get people's attention sustained on things that are more complex um, science or, um, you know, uh, uh, more nuanced stories. 
Um, and so I think that part of the issue is how do you get people to trust the information? And some people are going to trust some sources and other people are going to trust other sources. And when there's not a common agreement on what the truth is, um, it can be very, very difficult to achieve um, uh, public compliance with any kind of public health directive. And I think you're seeing some of that now in different parts of the country. Um, we have a related question, I, I think. Um, oh, I just lost it. Well, <laughs> uh, 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 Seth Cohen, I, I think it was, asked the question, um, might it happen that the common experience with this uh, with coronavirus that we're experiencing, not just here in the United States, but of course globally, is it possible that that will uh, build trust or are you more concerned about it uh, sort of eroding trust? Again, we've seen elements of both play out today. Do you have thoughts on that? How, how optimistic are you that we will emerge from this uh, better able to deal with the next challenge that is, that is like it? I'll get that to Gene first, I guess. Yeah, go ahead, Eugene. Yeah, so it's a hard question and you see it moving in different directions, right? So who have become the public heroes in the United States in response to COVID, right? I mean, so lots of people have praised Dr. Fauci. He seems like an expert. We're going to defer to his expertise. Other people, of course, don't like what he says and it's, it's interpreted in that partisan lens. But I think on average you know, his performance seems to have built trust in expert institutions relative to where, you know, there are a whole lot of people out there who are um, uh, uh, thinking of uh, non-experts as heroes on this for, you know, their performances, um, you know, so uh, Governor Cuomo, for example, many people praise his response, he's certainly not, you're not valorizing expertise in praising, but maybe you're valorizing his, um, uh, some other traits that he has, whether it's uh, caring, can-do spirit that wants to get things done, um, apparent willingness to listen to expertise. There are different things that, you know, that whether this is moving up or moving down our sense of expert of experts of expertise compared to say politicians um, uh, in American politics or you know the statements that we were I'm tired of hearing from experts or enough from these experts um, uh, you know that's people who are frustrated with experts being unable to solve the crisis or that their recommendations seem to be very expensive or seem to be you know, based on different values than those people have, and that can actually diminish trust in the expert institutions, right? So people could react in lots of ways. I think we won't know until the crisis moves along further. I mean, we'll see, you know, who end up being the heroes and the villains. Like, I think there are going to be real kind of serious bureaucratic investigations of, um, you know, why did the CDC act the way it did? Or how did the CDC respond to the crisis? Why was it not, you know, cautious in the way that it had been in the past uh, in building up? 
or you know the hospital system in New York City or what like you're going to see serious efforts to interpret the crisis which will then be used to answer the question that you asked Chris but you know kind of in the in the heat of it I don't know right um one question just came in from Max uh which I hadn't thought about this and so I'm so glad that we've had uh, a chance to talk about this so uh, North Korea uh, so far says it has had a moderate experience with COVID-19, uh, and yet we hear these reports uh, that Kim Jong-il uh, Kim Jong-un is is gravely ill. Um, but this is an an instance where a one type of crisis, a a, um, a pandemic, a disease, could lead to a, a very different kind of crisis, which is if there if a if a, a leader falls ill and ultimately dies, uh, then you're unleashing uh, potentially civil unrest in uh, a, a fragile country. So, uh, uh, would either of you want to comment? Uh, either one comment on sort of how. Uh, events like a pandemic disease or other other kind of global events can lead to uh, uh, second and third order effects like uh, like we're worried about uh, in Korea. Um, so I'm happy to take that because I actually wrote a book on presidential illness, so I've thought about this a lot. Um, and you know, Kim Jong Un isn't the only one. I mean, we really, you know, Boris Johnson was also an example of somebody who got very, very, very ill and. You know, that was ironic because, um, as he said, that two nurses who saved his life were immigrants. And so I've seen lots of uh, noises coming out of Britain about changes in immigration policy because he's so grateful to these immigrants for, you know, helping save his life in the ICU. Um, but I think with all these kinds of things, there's a lot of historical precedent for it. You know, uh, Woodrow Wilson got the flu in 1918 when he was negotiating the peace agreement in Paris, and it really affected the whole outcome of the rest of the conclusion of the Versailles Peace Treaty. This is not the first time you see this happen. And I've wondered that with North Korea. I mean, if he dies, you know, especially under an authoritarian system like that, it's really hard to know uh, who the successor is. And so I found it very interesting that his sister was um, raised in status yesterday or the day before. And so they're clearly trying to have some kind of um, uh, succession or inheritance put in place. Um, and obviously how destructive it is will depend on the nature of the regime, right? So if Boris Johnson has died, there's lots of other people in Britain. It doesn't have the same kind of clear succession that maybe it would have in the United States, but there's a queen, right? So there's somebody who is a force for national unity until uh, a new successor is chosen. But in North Korea, it's not so clear. And so um, you could think about whether or not that would lead to um, a popular uprising, a revolt, a kind of revolution. and you know, that remains to be seen, but it's always, uh, whenever you have a large public health crisis, it's always possible that it can lead to an overthrow of the government as people, um, as things become less stable. For example, if there starts to be food shortages or, you know, complete collapse of the healthcare system and the hospital system and so on, um, you have to think about, are you going to use the military to, um, you know, keep things from breaking out into riots and so on. And so, you know, depending on the country and depending on the kind of succession policies, it can really affect uh, public security as well as public health. 
Great, thank you. Uh, that actually just occurred to me. Another question that's come up um, over the course of this, the last few weeks is continuity of government here in the United States. So the sort of the challenge of bringing people in Congress physically together uh, to, to vote uh, and not having provisions for remote voting or proxy voting or things like that. Is that the kind of thing, when you talk about resilience, uh, Gene, in, in ter terms of building resilience to be able to deal with future threats, I could see this uh, in governance. I could see this even in terms of the way that businesses are are adapting on the fly uh, to learn how to well do events like this remotely from our homes. Um, uh, is that is that something that comes that is likely to come out of this um, uh, more than we've already seen? Uh, uh, sort of anticipating uh, the need uh, to have have uh, the ability to conduct it business uh, at a distance or even legislation or, or voting from a distance. It could come up, and I think people will respond in different ways. I mean, the continuity of government issue is an old issue in the United States, going back to, in particular, the nuclear uh, threats that Rose mentioned earlier, you know, in her introductory remarks. So, you know, when I was working in the Pentagon, uh, I mean, this is something that um, people have thought about, and they've thought about it in the context of lots of people dying all at once, who's in charge, which is different from how do we operate government when, you know, it's hard to bring everyone together and we have um, high level security things to discuss that we don't want to discuss, you know, on telephones or something like that. But it's also true that we've made provisions for that in the nuclear context before. And there, there is... You know, sure, there might be some more thought about this. Now, you mentioned, Chris, how does this go beyond the federal government, right? And and that is another question. Like, I, I don't know. I would guess uh, states and cities have, um, you know, there has been an incentive to proliferate plans, particularly in the post 9-11 era. So everyone has a plan somewhere on the shelf that probably no one has read since it was drafted and no one is prepared to execute. And it's probably unexecutable because it relies on resources that are going to be diverted to some other purpose all the time. Like these are, there are a million conflicting plans. And, you know, the good news is that we're good at muddling through. Um, corporations, if corporations spend a whole lot of time thinking about their, you know, continuity of governance for the corporation in response to this, I might question whether this was the right top priority. I mean, it's an important priority. Like if you have a single charismatic individual or a single skilled individual, you need to think about, is that a bottleneck? Is something to get messed up? But it's, it's equally likely or maybe more likely to me that that's someone who knows how to do craft production of a particular batch of some chemical that you need in your production process as it is the CEO. Like you have to think about how to make yourself resilient in the face of all kinds of potential disruptions and you know focusing on you know particular leadership transitions because there's been a pandemic i mean i bet some companies will do it because the people making decisions will you know want to make provisions to take care of themselves or to get a nice check or whatever it is that they want but uh, but i'm not sure that's the most necessary response okay Thank you. Um, I have a question from uh, Stefano Manicardi from Italy. 
Uh, he asks uh, for our opinion about different approaches on COVID. Uh, we saw, for example, in Europe that the Swedish government, which we consider a big government, somewhat misleadingly, I'll, I'll say as an aside, uh, that leaves people apparently free, uh, vice the US government, or at least parts of the US government, uh, which is supposed to be light on people's freedom. Is it is it too soon to speculate or comment on how some governments seem to be de uh, departing from type, or is this an example of, of where our understanding of the Swedish government uh, uh, maybe that that it, it betrays our sort of misunderstanding about what they're how they compare to the United States. Rose, you have a thought on that, or Jean, either one. That's just I mean, one we'll, we'll sort of. Yeah, my initial thought is just that we don't know yet. I mean, I think that some of these places start out looking better than they become, right? So Singapore looked like it was totally great and they were keeping everything under control. And then within a few days, they get 8,000 cases from migrant workers who are crowded in a dormitory. Um, now they seem to be very good with contact tracing and things like that. And so different government styles may be better at responding to these things. And, you know, the, the Swedes may have kept things open for a while, but we don't know that they won't shut things down if caseloads get higher. Um, and so I think that it's really hard to tell um, because it uh, intersects with um, the fact that the virus hits peaks in different places at different times. Um, and it's just hard to know. Right. Right. Thank you. Um, I'll just say go ahead, quickly G. about go ahead. the United States, Chris. You know, um, the United States often, you know, I talked about being seeming unprepared for crises when they come and then bringing resources to bear. Um, we also have a history of panic and crises that leads to things that we regret. Um, sometimes it leads to things we don't regret. But, um, you know, we aspire, we have very clear political culture and aspirations to freedom and liberty and to protecting those things. And we have institutions designed to protect them. But in crisis, sometimes we temporarily overlook or suspend those things. We are more deferential to executive power. You know, we, um, I don't know, one of the one of the top examples of this is rounding up these people who, uh, in a way that we clearly regret because we panicked, um, you know, the red scares that happened, you know, in the 50s and then also in the in the teens led to very regrettable episodes. What I think matters is that those things turn out to, in most American culture, to be aberrations, to be things that we do later regret. Although, you know, the Supreme Court decision about Japanese internment is still, quote, good law even today, um, right. which I find somewhat astonishing. Um, but uh, yes. I don't think this is a reflection of actually secretly the United States is a police state or that it's easy for us to give up our liberties. The fact that it seems like we have a pretty strong clampdown in parts of the United States today. Right. Um, we have just under five minutes left. Uh, if you do have, want to ask a question, uh, you can try to sneak one in. But in the meantime, I, I want to come back to sort of the, the original framing for this event, which is which is how fear shapes public policy and and sort of balancing the the correct level of fear that keeps us safe from harm from that which leads us to do uh, to to overreact uh, like like Eugene just point out um, 
perhaps bracketing pandemic disease, which is sort of hard for us to get our head out of right this minute, uh, is there one thing that you that either of you think we are particularly fearful of today that we should not be, or vice versa, is there a particular thing that we don't seem to be particularly concerned about that we should be more concerned about? I'll give that to Rose first, and then uh, maybe Jean can, can uh, take us to the end. Go ahead, Rose. Um, I'm smiling about your question, Chris, because a year ago when someone asked me this, I said the thing that we should be afraid of that we're not afraid of is pandemic disease. And so, you know, I think that that is one of those things that was predictable and we underprepared for. Um, I think one of the things that you're seeing a lot of fear against that probably is, you know, at least in my opinion, um, doesn't justify all the fear is the immigration stuff. Um, and, you know, we, um, we've done some work on this and show that people have um, really different baseline levels of fear, like dispositionally different baseline levels of fear, and that you can tie that to uh, concerns people have about outgroups, and that's so it plays out in areas like immigration. Um, and so, you know, you can cut off immigrants, but then who's actually going to be, um, you know, your farm workers and so on, and, and working in your meatpacking plants and, you know, things like that. And so, um, I do think that that's one of the places that um, there's been a lot of uh, attention to in terms of fear, but um, is probably not as uh, justified as the concerns that we should have had going into this about pandemic disease. Great, thank you. Eugene? Yeah. So I'll run home to what I know um, and talk about defense. Um, so you play uh, I think the fear that we underplay is the effect of our defense mobilization on our society, right? The, the kind of militarization or militarism in our society, the suspension of civil liberties um, that has happened, increasing allowing surveillance of American persons um, just as a casual, you know, okay, it, it, you know, of course that, that makes sense because of terrorist threat or whatever it is, like, that's an exaggerated fear that I worry about quite a lot. Um, uh, you know, or it's uh, <laughs> it's an underplayed fear. Like I was, I'm talking about it in both senses, right? So we underplay the fear of the corrosive effect of these activities on our own society. We overplay the fear of others that leads us to take these steps. Um, and, um, and just that we overplay the the threats that great you no know, nowadays we talk about great power competition all the time, but that great powers pose to the United States. Like great powers are acting up around the world. Um, we're a superpower. They're great powers. Like there's a difference, and um, they can act up. But how scared should we be of their acting up? I think that's a fear we're letting get wildly out of control. Like we should recognize these are not good governments and not friendly countries and they do things we don't want them to do but then how should we respond to that you know 700 yes. plus billion dollars a year and a lot of pugnacious rhetoric and sending the military all around the world to poke at them does not strike me as a reasoned response great thank you very much so uh we're, we're right near the end of our time i i really want to thank uh, Rose and Eugene for coming on today. I want to thank all of you for joining us. We had a lot of good questions and I apologize that I wasn't able to get to all of them. Um, the video recording of the event will be available on the webpage later today. I'll just give one last shout out. I mentioned it earlier in my remarks. 
uh, Cato's project on threat inflation. If you go to cato.org slash threat correction, you can see a bit more of that work. And we'll be rolling in new content there uh, every week or so. Um, if you encounter an example of where you see um, uh, what you think is, is sort of exaggerated fears or people hyping fears, uh, we encourage you to submit those ideas to us. And by the, on the flip side, where you think that, that there's a, a media organization or a person who's pushing back on exaggerated fears and trying to put those in proper context, we'd like to hear those as well. So uh, thank you again uh, to all of you for participating. Thanks to Rose and Eugene, and thanks to Cato's event staff for organizing this event, and I'll sign off there. Thank you.